0: Good morning. Normally I'm on this side of worship, so I had to remind myself not to sing too loud just then, because I was going to lose my voice. But it was really nice, I could hear all your voices for once. That was great. Um, If we haven't met, my name's Ben, and I run run the worship and design here at Northern Life. And um, today we are in the second week of a two-week mini-series called Living Hope, Living Stones. So last week we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1, that Jesus is our living hope, And today we're opening chapter 2 to see how Jesus is a living stone. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you that your word is the highest authority. We come under it today. We want to learn from it and be challenged and convicted and encouraged and comforted. We pray that you would do everything that your word does to us and help me as I communicate it. In Jesus' name, amen. So in a previous life, way back in my teenage years, I worked as a graphic designer for a guy in this church who owned a company. And one of the things I got to do in my job was design logos for clients. Um, There was somebody else in the team who was better at designing logos than I was, but I still got to do it every now and then. And one of the things they teach you in design school, which is what I also did, is the idea of positive and negative space. Are you guys familiar with that idea? Yeah, so positive space is the subject that's in the frame, and negative space is the area into which the subject's positioned. So there's a couple of examples here. Hands up who sees the two faces first? Hands up who sees the vase in the middle? Okay, less people. What about this one? Hands up for the saxophone, and hands up for the woman. Okay, and what about this one? This is tricky. Do you see anything? Jesus, yeah. Or maybe just a bearded man. Two eyes up the top. So, what do I tell you? Firstly, to brag about the fact that I know something about design. But secondly, because in 1 Peter, the subject of what Peter's talking about is that we are living stones. And I think it's really hard to understand what that means in positive space if we don't have the negative space to put it in. So my goal today is to teach us from the word of God what it means to be living stones in the context of the negative space. So last week we established that 1 Peter is the story of Peter. So Peter, it's probably written by a guy called Silvanus in Rome, but it's the story of Peter. And Peter knew Jesus very well, as we know. And he was a Jewish guy. So his book, his letter is full of loads of... Old Testament themes and motifs. So we're going to try and pick some of them up today. But the reason that Peter wrote 1 Peter is to encourage Christians who are experiencing persecution for their faith. So there are people who are dying and being persecuted, and he writes this letter to comfort them. It's a very practical letter that teaches us how to live today in the the rhythms of day-to-day life in the light of what's happening in heaven. So last week we looked at how Jesus is our living hope, so even though we suffer and go through persecution on earth, we look to heaven and we know that we have new birth in heaven and we have a living hope inherent in heaven. So Jesus is our living hope. Today, 1 Peter 2.4 says Jesus is a living stone. In fact, every person who puts their faith in Jesus is also a living stone. I want to put to you that there are four parts of the image that makes up what it is to be a living stone. And we'll read from verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the first part of the image of the living stone is who Jesus is. At the moment, I'm at Bible college and I'm in like essay writing mode to the max. And I can't help but notice that Peter is kind of writing an essay here. So he makes an assertion, Jesus is the living stone. And then like any good essay writer, he supports that with references. And so for him, he goes to the Old Testament and he finds three references. The first one is from Isaiah 28. So verse 6 says, See I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So Jesus is the living cornerstone. In the architectural engineering of the first century, the cornerstone was the most important stone in a building because the angle and the size and the dimensions of the cornerstone dictated the way the rest of the building was built. It was always the first stone to be laid, and so for Jesus to be our cornerstone means that he's the foundation of our faith. Matthew 16, verse 18, we read last week, says that upon Peter, the Peter who wrote this letter, Upon his confession that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus will build his church. I find it quite interesting that Jesus here uses the building metaphor for the church. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but he could have easily said, in this soil I will grow my church, or um, with these members I will grow my body. But he says, on this rock I will build my church. And Matthew seven, twenty-four says the same thing. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man or woman who built their house on the rock. And we know that the way this passage finishes is to contrast it with those who hear the words and don't put them into practice, because they're like those who build their house on sand. So there's those who build their house on rock and those who build it on sand. And the same idea is in 1 Peter here, in verse 7. Now to you who believe, these are the ones who've built their house on the rock. To you who believe, the stone is precious. But those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. So as firm a foundation as Jesus can be for those who believe in him, for those who don't believe in him, he's just a stumbling block that kind of gets in the way of what you're trying to do. Um, I studied Greek last year, so I feel like I have to do a little bit of a Greek spiel. The Greek in verse 7 is quite interesting in the word cornerstone. Um, Yeah, verse 7, cornerstone. It comes from the two Greek words kephalane and gonias. Kephalane means head or chief or top, and gonias means angle or corner. So most translations say like chief cornerstone, cornerstone. But I think, and some scholars would say this, that it's within the realm of translational possibility to say capstone, the chief of the cornerstones. You imagine an arch. The stone at the center, the cap of the arch is very important. So, if that is the way we take this translationally, Peter's saying that Jesus is the cornerstone and the capstone of our faith, which is the top and the bottom. And Paul, in Colossians 1.18, says a similar thing. And he is the head of the body, the church. That's capstone, the head of the body. He is also the beginning and the firstborn, the cornerstone, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So Jesus, and the revelation that he is the Messiah is the foundation upon which he is building his church and upon which he has been building his church for 2,000 years. And so we come to the second part of the image of the living stone in 1 Peter 2. Firstly, Jesus is the living cornerstone. Secondly, the church is the spiritual temple. Back in verse 5, it says, "...you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ." So the church is the temple. We know from scripture there are passages that describe individual Christians as being the temple. So 1 Corinthians 6.19, for instance, says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? But at the same time, our passage here, sorry, the one before, 1 Peter 2.5, says that Christians corporately are the temple. Did you know that church is a collective noun? Probably. What's a group of geese called? Gaggle. What's a group of lions called? What's a group of um, flamingos called? Flamboyants, who said that? Probably Evan. Um, What's a group of uh, teenagers called? (laughs) Trouble. A recipe for disaster. Um, What's a group of Christians called? A church. The church is the group of Christians. At the church I grew up in, um, there was a guy who, whenever he was doing announcements at night church, he would kind of always say Um, welcome church. You know, church is not a building, but it's the people. We are the people. And at that time I was like, dude, find something else to say because he would say it every time. But now I realize that I think it's important to say that because it changes the way that we engage with the church and with the world when we think that church is a place we go to on the corner of Pretoria and College Crescent so that when we leave the church, we are no longer the church. But instead, scripture teaches that church is a spiritual reality that occurs whenever Christians gather together in the name of Jesus, whether physically or spiritually. And we're grateful, I think, for um, the situation in COVID that the Lord's made a way for people online to join us from all over the world. So right now we have people probably in Rwanda right now or um, the Netherlands or America or other parts of Australia who are joining us and who are part of our church because we are gathered here in the name of Jesus and they're with us spiritually spiritually. When Christians meet together in Jesus' name, they are the church, and the church is the spiritual temple. The Old Testament talks about the temple as being the intersection between heaven and earth, the place where these two meet. So you imagine the Venn diagram. I'm a very visual person. The Venn diagram of heaven and earth, the overlap in the middle, is what the Jewish conception of the temple was. So typically, temples were built on mountains, because mountains were seen as other and different from us and closer to God. But the New Testament reality is that now, any place where Christians gather together in the name of Jesus is a spiritual temple, which is built on the foundation of Jesus as the cornerstone. So that means, if we have faith and eyes to see it, that this room and every room from everyone joining us online is the temple when we meet in it. And whether we meet in our homes or in our offices, or at our workplaces, when we gather in Jesus' name, we are the place where heaven and earth meet. What a privilege. There's a concept taught throughout the Bible of privilege and responsibility. So Luke 12 48 says, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. The promise given to Abraham, which Dad coincidentally mentioned earlier, back in Genesis 12 at the formation of the nation of Israel, was that Israel would be a blessing to all the nations. So as God blesses them, they will be the conduit and the vessel to bless others. And one of the ways that this happened is that Israel had the temple in Jerusalem. And so they had the, let me get this right, the privilege of the proximity of the presence of God, say that 10 times quick, Israel had the privilege of the proximity of the presence of God, but then on the flip side, they had the responsibility to steward that blessing for the nations. And one of the ways they did this, we know historically from the Bible, is the temple had a couple of courts, and one of the courts was the court of the Gentiles, where people from all over the world, the world, could come and worship Yahweh, the God of the Jews. But now in the New Testament era, the church, not as this building, Northern Life, but the people, who is Northern Life, is now the temple. And that leads us to the third part in the image of the living stone in 1 Peter 2. So we remember, firstly, Jesus is the living cornerstone, The church is the spiritual temple. And now Christians are a royal priesthood. We pick up from verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So there's a tension here. Christians corporately, when they meet together, are the temple, but individually, Peter says that we're a royal priesthood. In the Old Testament, the priests were the ones who worked in the temple. So if the temple is where heaven and earth meet, then the priests were seen as mediators between God and humanity. They sat in that space. In the Bible, the Old Testament actually talks about three offices of people who were mediators between God and humans, and that's prophets, priests, and kings. The prophets in the Old Testament, were the ones who spoke the words of God. Sometimes this was a message of judgment and sometimes of comfort and encouragement. The priests would offer sacrifices to God in worship uh, and for atonement on behalf of the people, and kings were those tasked with administering the rule and reign of God to steward creation and bring God's justice to earth. I told you that it was full of Old Testament imagery. I love it. Um, 1 Peter 2.9 says that today, in this room, those who have faith in Jesus are now a royal priesthood individually. Chosen that they may declare God's praises. So a royal priesthood that they may declare. They are kings, prophets, kings and queens, prophets and priests. So Peter's activating these motifs from the Old Testament in his letter to say that now each one of us who have faith in Jesus, we take up the office of prophet, priest and king. The last time I preached was in January back in online phase and um, I was preaching on ro- worship from Romans 11 and 12 and one of the points I made was from Romans 12, 1, that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God and I said um, uh, um, attention, affection and action, I almost forgot my end sermon, um, those are the things which God is looking for us to offer to him. And I didn't say it at the time because it wasn't relevant to the message, but this is a priestly duty that we have as Christians, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Hebrews 13 says this. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. A sacrifice of praise. So every Christian is a priest, Secondly, we are a royal priesthood, so we're kings and queens, tasked with the mandate from Genesis 1 to um, promote the welfare of creation and see it to become everything that God wants it to be. 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3 says this, Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? So we are... I did this in the wrong order. We are priests, kings, and prophets. Ephesians 6.17 implores us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is alive and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So the office and the spiritual gifting of the prophet is one who speaks God's words into the situations that need them. And of course, you need to know God's words to do that. And we praise God for 6260 um, 60 and 2450 starting tomorrow that as a church we are immersed in the word. So when it comes time to pull out the sword of the spirit, we have a sword because we know the word. I think that's really cool. So finally, pardon me, reverse. Now, of course, we all fail to live up to this high calling to be prophet, priest, and king. But we know that there is one who did not fail. Jesus is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Through his word and his spirit, he prophetically speaks God's word to us for every moment. By his sacrifice of his own body as priest, he makes atonement for all our sin and intercedes for our every need. And he reigns right now as risen king enthroned at the right hand of the Father, having conquered sin and death and disarmed the rulers, powers, and authorities of this world. Hallelujah. Amen. Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. So finally, we come to the fourth and final part of the image of the living stone. Firstly, uh, Jesus is the living cornerstone. The church is the spiritual temple. Christians are the royal priesthood. And now fourthly, the world is the mission field. This is how I do four on my right hand. I can't get my finger. That's Anyway. And this is really the crux of the um, positive-negative space analogy because the first three points are an assertion in positive space of what it means to be the living stones. But now the fourth point puts it in the context of the negative space. So we are the living cornerstone, the spiritual temple, and the royal priesthood, but we're in the context of the world as our mission field. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a royal priesthood, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So to to declare the praises of God obviously requires someone to declare them too. It's an obvious point. Actually, the Greek in verse 9, when it says that you may declare the praises, might be better translated excellencies. I quite like that. Declare the excellencies of him. So we all need a mission field to declare the excellencies of him too. Out of the privilege that it is for us to be the royal priesthood, we have the responsibility to do two things, to worship and to witness. So what's your mission field? Where are you, prophet, priest, and king, Lindsay, or um, prophet, priest, and queen, Morgan? We're all prophet, priest, and king. Where is the mission field that God is calling you to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light? And I don't think that we're all called to teach, which is great, We're not all called to evangelize. We're not all called to be prophets and pastors, but to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light in whatever circle you find yourself in. And I think that's just your story. How did he call you out of darkness? If you tell that, then you can see people, you can be a part of what God's doing to bring people out of darkness. So, to bring all the parts of the living stone together, Jesus is our living stone. The church is the spiritual temple. Christians are the royal priesthood. And the world is the mission field. Verse 9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So, what are we going to do? Application time. Um, I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. I This is negative space, right? I'm not going to be um, apathetic and lethargic when it comes to church. I feel a temptation and a weight to be like, oh, it's just another Sunday, whatever. I can do it on autopilot. But I have to think, no, you really think that Jesus is building his church for 2,000 years on the foundation that he is the Messiah so that we could rock up late or whatever to church and sit gathered with Christians together in the name of Jesus To do nothing, like what? That our hearts aren't beating, and we walk out of this place going, "Oh, church was good. What's for lunch?" Like, see you next week. As James would say, brothers and sisters, this should not be so. When Christians gather together in Jesus' name, like we're doing right now, they are called church, and heaven is watching. I think the angels look at that and they're like, "Whoa!" They're gathered in Jesus' name. What are they going to do with the presence of God? We have a privilege and a responsibility. And scripture says, even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That's crazy and that's cool. But when you think you and I are the church, we are the church right now. The gates of hell will not prevail against us as we go forward. So if you got nothing else out of this sermon, get this. The church is alive. Amen? The church is not a building. It's not a relic from a bygone era of Christendom. It's relevant and it's alive right now. And the church is the temple of the living God which is made up of the living stones that is every son and daughter here who has been called out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Jesus is building and growing his church here in Hornsby. So we won't be quiet and we won't abdicate our role in the world that he's called us to. So as prophets, we know the word. We do things like 6260 and 2450. We know the word well enough that we can pull out the sword of the Spirit and speak God's word into every situation. And as priests, we daily offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. We offer the sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And as kings and queens, we steward the earth responsibility, responsibly. And it's all for the glory of Jesus, the living cornerstone himself. The church is alive. The church is alive to worship and to witness to the one who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are alive and our hearts are beating now together. We're gathered in your name and we just believe and declare that there is power in the name of Jesus. So Holy Spirit, lead us and prompt us and move us to do the things that you want us to do. And Lord, as we leave this place, as we walk out the doors, shortly we do not cease to be church we just we become the church scattered not the church gathered and there's power in your name jesus and all the people said amen